For hundreds of years, cannabis has been used as a natural medicine by many cultures across the world. But many modern day doctors seem more interested in synthetic medicines that come with a host of dependencies and side effects. Are doctors biased in their decision to choose synthetic medicines over natural medicines? Or are we just dealing with a lack of education and research amongst the medical community? In today's show, we take a deeper look at this question with our special guest, Dr. Vanessa Cumming. I'm your host, Garth Case, alongside my partners in all things green, Odin Gabay and Andre Brown. And this is The Real Green Show. Hey, what's going on, O? What's going on, G? How you doing? I'm good, man. Not bad at all. Andre, you on the line? Yes, sir. I'm here and kicking. All right, great. So, Andre, welcome to the podcast. This is your first one with us. Thanks for joining us. But today we have a special guest uh, that we haven't really done any interviews thus far on our podcast. This will be our first, and we're very happy to welcome Dr. Vanessa Cumming. She's a senior clinical research coordinator at the University of Miami Pediatrics, and we're just super happy to have her on the line uh, to have this discussion with us. But welcome, Dr. Cumming. Thank you. Okay. So, um, guys, anything you'd like to ask Dr. Cumming, please feel free to jump in. You know, it's a conversational format today, um, not so much of an interview. But I'll kick it off with, with Dr. Cumming and, and ask, you know, where you stand on cannabis as a, a medical treatment today? I, I think that cannabis has um, great therapeutic interest. I, you know, I, I first heard about um, cannabis being used in the medical realm in my pharmacology undergrad training, um, and I, I, I was trained at the University of the West Indies in Jamaica, and uh, and of course there we spoke about Professor West, who had. We, you know, done about 10 years of constant research on Kennesaw after noticing that uh, nighttime fishermen, um, especially Rastafarian fishermen, had very, very good night vision. And they, uh, they, they had lower incidences of glaucoma. The pressures in their eyes were were better controlled, and and he did ten intensive years of research with uh, Dr. Lockhart. I think it was. Um, this is in like the 1950s into the 60s, uh, and and ultimately developed Canasol, which is now used as a as an anti glaucoma medication. Um, and you know we heard about this in in medical school because he was he was a, a lecturer from our medical school but we also understood that this was a this was a, a medication with great therapeutic benefit that that was not allowed in many many parts of the world because of regulations surrounding what was considered an illicit drug um but now with with bigger deregulation uh, around the, the world, um, I think a lot of people are catching on to, to the therapeutic, potential therapeutic and, and already proven therapeutic benefits of, of cannabis-derived products um, in the, the pharmaceutical realm. Mm, that's um, interesting. Yeah. I, one of the things um, I, I came to realize, just some general research and, and entering the industry, 
you know, I, a few doctors told me that through their, you know, medical schooling, they weren't taught about the endocannabinoid system. Is that true for you too? I wasn't taught about it in, um, in neurophysiology. Uh, nor in pathology, it was, it, it's something that I have become more familiar with since graduation. I, I graduated in 2002, so I'm, I'm pre this, this big boom and this, this big act of, of um, pharmaceutical interest in, in cannabis-derived products. Um, so maybe in today's medical um, student cohort there might be more that that is taught about it i'm i'm not sure but um but i i i'm the same as the the others that you've interviewed <laughs> that were not taught about the endocannabinoid uh, system yeah it's it's very interesting um I, I hope that's being corrected uh you, it's it seems to me though that because folks weren't you know maybe trained on this or you know got some deeper understanding of it you think that might have something to do with the reluctance of maybe looking at it, at it like an actual medicine? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. And and then because there were so many government regulations uh, and and other governing body regulations about about this, what was seen as a as an illicit street drug, you know, for for a very long time, um, I, I think that, that sort of attitude will, will definitely cloud people's ability to, to see outside of that. Absolutely, absolutely. I had a question. How, how was this um, medication uh, formulated? Do you have any idea at all? How was the Canisol? Canisol, yes. How was it, it formulated? It was formulated as a um, as a liquid eye drop, I think. First, um, he had discovered that there were people in the country in Jamaica who were using eye washes that were that were um, that were were used for nighttime fishermen or by nighttime fishermen to improve their their night vision, and and he he. He developed it as a as an eye drop, I think, at first. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a great question, though. I mean, so, so will smoking cannabis have the same effect from a glaucoma perspective, or is it just um, merely that he has formulated um, something that contains an extract of cannabis or something like that? Is because I've seen people say, "Yeah, I smoke, um, you know, marijuana for my glaucoma," and I always say, "Is that a joke? Are you serious? Or is it actually actually helping you? Um, do you know?" I can't comment on on the ophthalmological benefit of smoking cannabis uh, because because there are no trials that have have examined that delivery system. Um, yeah, what I what I know about is is what we studied in pharmacology and what I have read about. That's Prof a good West segue, and, actually. And Lockhart's yeah. yeah into the fact that there's very little you know, trials and, and studies um, that we can rely on. Um, do you see the pace of that picking up now that, you know, this thing is gaining steam? Oh, heavens, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah there, there's, there's big work being done now. Um, uh, this is, this is, I mean, you know, any kind of natural product, I think people naturally gravitate 
toward you know any kind of non-pharmaceutical is is exciting news right now in today's world in the in the 21st century um so there, there's already interest in natural things and then there's there's a lot of changing regulations um and and for a lot of the initial uses that are being examined right now for for CBDs and um, and other cannabis-derived pharmaceuticals, there have been many complications of the drugs that do exist right now, and and they fall short. So so there are a lot of people looking looking for options. It's it's an attractive option. You know? Doc, Dr. Cumming, um, this is Andre. I have a quick question, um, specifically in your field. Um, you know, where you, you specialize in sickle cell research and um, pain management is, is a huge part of, of treating sickle cell patients. Have you seen any, any development there in the use of cannabis as, as a pain management medicine? Yeah, I mean, I've seen this um, for for many years before the pharmaceutical uh, industry has has jumped on board and has tried to 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 exploit the analgesic effects of of cannabis derived products, um, and I certainly had patients, you know, mostly adult patients in Jamaica and here in the United States who spoke a lot about using. Um, cannabis, uh, inhaled cannabis. This is usually people talking about smoking cannabis um, who who told me that either they would use it rather than using what it was we were prescribing or they're using it in conjunction with the, the pharmaceuticals that we were prescribing because it, it ameliorated their, their pain syndrome, either acute pain or chronic pain. Um, so this was, I mean, this was something that that started long before the the pharmaceutical companies, like I said, started to to jump on board. Um, so much so that when I was approached about doing clinical trials for Big Pharma, if they were going to be drug testing my patients, I would flat out refuse if if they were going to be testing for marijuana um I, I said fine you can test for other other drugs you know amphetamines um uh, um cocaine derivatives and and lsd and, and other street drugs like that but there are just too many there are many too many of our patients who are using these these types of products to test negative and it, it's not equitable for for patients to, to not allow them to to get access to to trying new new products um and now since since the legalization of medical marijuana products in many places around the world um there there is a huge interest in in using many of these products for pain management both acute and chronic pain management from what I'm reading um, for from from cannabis direct products. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because one of the things I recognized is how much of a good alternative this has been kind of on this war on opioids, right? Um, you know, it's, it was strange to me that people would be prescribed a medicine that they could be addicted to, you know, as in opioids and, you know, not have like the proper way of managing that you know uh 
it's it's kind of you're given a, a medicine and you just say go ahead and take it but then you get this unhealthy reliance on it uh, you know it always you know scared me a bit to think that um, the medical community was okay with that uh, you know what, what are your feelings on opioids um, I mean there, there's there's so much um, riddled into this this um, opioid epidemic right now uh, these are drugs huge drugs of abuse in in people who are using them for the the wrong reasons a very small minority of patients with rail pain syndromes actually become dependent or addicted to these to these drugs we still use them um and with with good effect, but they do have many side effects. So we're always looking for for options, but at the moment there are no other legal options. That being said, I mean, there, there's a lot of fences that you have to jump over to, to prescribe these things now to the to the people that that legitimately should be be using them still. But um, but I mean, I I, I hear you. There's the, the the opioid epidemic has been devastating, and and has been responsible for a lot of abuse, and uh, not just of, of opioids, but um, but of of other offshoot drugs as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you see a possibility and, of this being a similar problem ever with cannabis? We have not seen the the abuse potential in cannabis-derived products as yet, mm-hmm. nor have we seen the dependence um, potential as yet. The, but there are fewer studies, of course, right. on um, on heavy users. But but in heavy users, we we don't see the same side effects, and because it's it metabolized by a different a different system, um, you know, neurologically, mm-hmm. the it, it probably won't, but I, I can't say for certain. But we so far we have not seen the same type of um, abuse potential. Right. And when you think about absorption of, of cannabis, you know, obviously being in the in the cannabis business ourselves, um, we are looking always for ways to ensure that people are properly dosing from it or using the right amount because um, just from personal experience I can tell you that uh, you know it, it differs just based on your body chemistry I think I, you know I've seen people who you know who they like a particular strain and it react they react well to it and then the, the, another person reacts very different to the same strain so when I think about this and I think about dosing and how people should be taking cannabis, do you have any thoughts on on what might be the best way to to do it? Is it through edibles, through vaping, through smoking? Through I mean, obviously, I don't think you're going to say smoking is the number one thing, but um, but what do you think about how 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 do you see it in the future? If not now, how will people be taking or using um, you know cannabis in terms of um, you know treating themselves or or, or, or if it's prescribed? Yeah, I mean, from a public health standpoint, of course, I'm not going to to advocate smoking anything. Um, so you're, you're <laughs> right, right there. Um, no, I, I know it's fine, and that's yeah. why I'm saying it. Yeah. And and we will also not endorse, you know, vaping if we if we can avoid it. Um, but I, I the only way to answer 
dosing questions mm -hmm. and tolerance questions is to is to do the research you know um to do early trials i think there are, there are already phase one trials out there animal studies um i think what we need to do is we need to get into phase two two b and phase three studies which which is happening now um where where you can do dose escalation studies um we already know about lethal doses and in animals um so we you know we, we know not to go above those but Right. But um, but the only way to to be able to 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 standardize dosing is is to to do the research. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. You know, it's funny because um, I mean, not so funny. The the while we're talking about it medically right now, obviously a lot of states have um, made this. I, I don't like using the term recreational, but um, adult use. Um, as being something that's okay, like alcohol um, and so on. How do you feel about that occurring? And, and is there anything specific about that that concerns you? Um, well, like any legalized uh, drug, regulating who it is who's taking it is, is going to be a challenge, I think. Um, and from, from what we see, there, there are there are adverse effects of of these these drugs, especially um, you know cognitive function and reflexes and um, and and in adolescents there adolescents and, and younger children mm. there are um, there are adverse effects that that need to be um, need to be regulated. I think. Um, and and there's I mean there are there are longer term studies that have have demonstrated actual physical brain changes in in the developing cerebrum you know in the developing brain um, uh, that are associated with higher order cognition and stuff that mm -hmm. that are concerning for for use in in young children and, and adolescents um, so regulation I think is is going to be a challenge but I mean cannabis is is I think because as long as we can keep it pure or more quote unquote natural I, I think it's safer than than some other legalized drugs that are out there especially cigarettes mm -hmm. you know look Absolutely. at look at what's happened with with those and and I think you know chronic ganja smokers just can't physically smoke as as much as as chronic cigarette smokers can so we we may actually see fewer adverse um effects and sort of long-term cancers and, and that type of thing from from misuse of these street drugs that's absolutely true yeah um you know you you raise a great point about uh the, the amount of cannabis uh regular chronic cannabis user uses versus a uh, uh hardcore tobacco user and the differences are so stark you know you see people going through three four packs a day versus someone who smokes, you know, probably three or four joints, you know, throughout the whole day. You know what I mean? I, I'm, I wouldn't consider myself a chronic smoker, but, you know, I, I consume just about every day in different forms as well. So, you know, you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, I 
I was trained in Jamaica where there, there are you know chronic ganja smokers and there are populations there you know the Rastafarians and stuff who this is this is a part of their their lives and I did not see them filling up um, pulmonology wards in the <laughs> same way that, that cigarette smokers were, were filling up the wards uh, yeah, man, it just goes to show you yeah. that's interesting uh, so you know the hot thing nowadays is uh, CBD, right? I mean, you can't go down the street without seeing someone, either with a sign that says they're selling CBD or, or something. It, it's unbelievable to me. You know, even in markets that uh, are not, you know, um, legal, you know, even medically, people are selling CBD everywhere. And so there's you know the hemp CBD, obviously, and not necessarily the cannabis-based um, CBD. Um, any thoughts on CBD overall and and its benefits and, and you know just any thoughts or concerns about CBD and what's happening today? Um, I mean, like I said in the very beginning, I think there's there's great therapeutic interest in in CBDs um, or cannabidiol. Um, many people err on the side of the you know natural or non-pharmaceutical products and this is why these things are, are popping up all over the place and uh, the FDA doesn't regulate uh, medications that are labeled as as supplements and, and stuff in the same way that, that they do pharmaceuticals so things get through. There, it does not have uh, such a high dependence potential. It's, it's considered low to moderate in its dependent potential um the active dose is is really far below the lethal, lethal dose um this is compared with like caffeine for example that has a moderate to low uh, dependence potential with an active dose morphine has a, a high dependence potential at the active or, or lethal doses and heroin has a very very high dependence potential at at an active lethal dose um there are common side effects that we see with with some CBDs, um, you know, including sort of anxiety, um, altered sense of, of time, uh, decreased blink rates, um, uh, dry mouth. Mm. They, they have demonstrated slow, lower sperm counts, um, although those those studies are not as um, not as uniform um, and that they're not in big patient populations. There's slow pupillary response to light, um, reduced co coordination, ataxia, um, like dysphoria sometimes, uh, that, you know, like altered sense of, of well-being um, and cough, obviously, especially in people who are smoking these, these products, but they're not, they're not tending not to smoke just the CBDs. Anyway, I mean, there's there's great therapeutic interest and and I think that there's there's a lot more work that can and, and will be done in this realm. Awesome. I was I was happy to hear you guys talking earlier about, um, you know, trying to work with people who are, are already doing clinical trials. That's, that's my thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> so even in the case of CBD, you're saying is that, you know, there are, uh, side effects and you know mm -hmm. those go throughout the day they cover a range as well right so it's important yeah. that even with CBD dosing is, is quite important mm -hmm. yeah so what was interesting about what you said to Dr. Cumming was 
uh, CBD is psychoactive. Some of those things you just mentioned are somewhat psychoactive, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think a lot of people in their minds don't recognize that there could be some psychoactive effects because everyone associates THC with the psychoactive, you know, um, side of cannabis. But some of those um, side effects, they sound like it. Uh, you could also look at it as being psychoactive, which I think is maybe why the FDA is taking such a very close look at this. Mm. And I mean, there there are side effects with all drugs. You know, um, it, it's it's about it's about safety and it, it's about risk benefit ratio. I think you know. Yep, I agree. I agree 100%. And we were talking about the, the opioid epidemic earlier. I mean, obviously, those risks are are, are huge. Right. But, but we need to have data on, on anything that we're putting out there. Yes. But also, also if I might add, um, to, to a point you made earlier, um, Garth, in that... You know, everyone's everyone's body. You know, everyone's met- metabolic metabolic makeup is different, um, and some of these effects may be as a result of of individual metabolic you know rates and makeups and and and, and things like that. Um, from my own personal experiences and some of the data and research that I have read. Um, the, the you know the CBD effects the, the THC effects um, it kind of heightens the systems that are already there like with some people if they're naturally nervous you know sometimes uh, uh you know a, a particular cultivar of cbd or of thc will actually make them a little bit more paranoid you know so again you know as dr Cummings said that you know there really has to be a little bit more testing you know especially as as the industry develops and especially where you know the sources of these CBDs and 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 cannabis products are coming from. Um, you know which kind of is part of the reason why you know Jamrock is who we are in the sense that you know we 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 are organic. We want the purest form of 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 everything and every product that we will be producing and 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 selling to our clients. Right. Yeah, I'm a big proponent of knowing where you get your uh, medicine from because uh, you know there as this industry is exploding like something we've never seen before there's going to be a lot of bad players coming in and out of this industry people that don't know what they're doing people who will run up on problems and try to treat them in very unethical ways so it's you know that's one of the main things that we have to do is you know let our or our listeners or consumers know that you know, where you get your product from, it should be one of the main things you should be thinking about. It's not just unethical use, it's it's sometimes just uncontrolled use. You know, you talk about different people metabolizing things in different ways. You know, somebody who weighs what I weigh might completely, uh, you, you know, go off the rails for mm-hmm. using a particular product i'm talking any product here i'm talking about aspirin as well um and and somebody who is much bigger than me or has double my my body weight might not feel it at all and this is why we have adult dosing this is why we have pediatric dosing and different different formulations so that the delivery system can be can be um can be changed to whoever it is that you're that you're treating it in i'm always fascinated by that you know because uh, I think about people having allergies to things and so on. Like, for instance, I, I can't take aspirin, right? Um, it literally tightens my chest up if I take it. Um, and, you know, I have an allergy. I never used to have an allergy to avocado. 
Now I do, right? Certain things about my body has changed over time um, in a weird way. And it's, I always think about trials and things like that and how they study these things. Um, and is there a percentage of like error in, error in most trials that says, you know, we probably are right by about this amount or off by this amount? How does, how does a trial really work? It's, it's always been fascinating to me. And if you could talk a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, the gold standard is a, a randomized controlled clinical trial where y- you, y- you you try and um, take out anything that you that you can control for, for differences so that you're standardizing the, the way that people are are taking whatever it is that you're that you're testing and then um you you randomly assign them to to different groups meaning either different doses or different drug groups you know one group might get aspirin one group might get a cbd one group might get a placebo um so that so that you can you can report how people do on all of these different arms of your of your trial and and what we do is we monitor very, very closely for any and all side effects. Some might be expected side effects, you know, um, for example, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. I mean, you, you expect those types of side effects from just about anything that that you put into your body, and people will report these things. And and we also we also take like we want to hear about any kind of side effect if, if you have a motor vehicle accident we want to hear about that also because we might not have expected it but for all we know maybe people trying the the aspirin arm are are for some reason more likely to get into a motor vehicle accident than mm. than people in the cbd or in the placebo arm i i don't know this is just conjecture here um, and and you depending on the phase of the trial that you're that you're running you will you will get more and more participants as you as you go up in the the phases like the a phase 2 trial would be a smaller number of of patients with the disease of interest and then phase three will be a a larger number of patients with the disease of interest phase four is post-marketing where you're just you're just doing monitoring after after drugs have gone to market and you're you have to report regularly about side effects as they as they come up and that's how that's how the you know for example i don't know if you remember in the um in the early to mid 2000s that celebrex mm-hmm. um thing that, that came up that that was a cox2 inhibitor um that's a that's a type of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug that people were using that ended up after it went to market to to be discovered to have some cardiovascular side effects. Um, yeah, so that, I mean that was that was in that was in huge numbers of patients that that this trend became apparent. Wow, um, and, and so yeah, I assume that most, influenced the way people test kind of going forward. Uh, you oh know. yeah, sure. yeah. But I, you know, nothing's going to get by if you don't um, if you don't report early findings as well. So you know, like I said, there's always a risk benefit ratio, um, and you expect a certain amount of a certain amount of risk. Um, it's just what what is allowed that is is different. Makes sense. Absolutely makes sense. Oh. Um. Because they, you 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 know based on the traditional medical community, right? They've been 
taught a certain way. Again, you go back to the endocannabinoid system and, you know, most doctors not knowing about it. Um, what do you see, what do you, what kind of changes do you think needs to happen um, for the traditional medical community to kind of grasp cannabis as a whole, you know, try to kind of make it a little bit mainstream? Because to be honest with you, so many states are using it medically. Um, I think that, you know, more doctors would be able to 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 discover or to to do their due diligence into how you know they can treat their patients because I'm sure a lot of patients now, especially in states like uh, Colorado or California or wherever, coming to their, their traditional doctor's office and asking, you know, doctor, what do you think of cannabis? I'm taking cannabis. You know, where where do I stand here? You know, like what would it take for you know, the, the traditional doctor to say, okay, you know, you're taking cannabis with this medicine. So, you know, look out for these type of symptoms or whatever that may take. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is going to take time and, and acceptance into the general medical literature. I think we're going to need good, you know, solid peer reviewed publications that, that can be used together in sort of a meta-analysis way to provide evidence-based practice guidelines for different uses of, of cannabis products. Um, and, and that will ultimately lead to, to, to more acceptance in the, the general older quote-unquote I don't want to put myself into the older um, <laughs> no, you, you're, you're in the progressive so. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that 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 time and 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 more medical literature out there um, you know good good peer-reviewed medical literature will will only help and and once you've got a meta-analysis then then you can start to create like I said um, evidence-based practice guidelines for use. Uh, right now, we don't have those, so we, we can't really be guided by, by very much. We can be guided by our patients' experiences, perhaps by our own experiences from the smaller trials that we have read, if, if you're progressive enough to actually keep up with that type of reading but none of this is none of this is mandated in what's required for you know annual cme credits cme is a continuing medical education i'm sorry um credits so you know if if you're not if you're not uh, interested yourself then you, you you don't have to to be reading about these things um i think most people will if their if their patients are coming in with questions um but for now, it's it's not mandated. Right. So I have a question about that in terms of, you know, you mentioned these CME credits and, and so on. Um, so I'm assuming that this particular area is not credited. So you, you wouldn't get credit even if you did study it um, at this particular point in time because it's not recognized in that way. Is that true? hell no uh it'll be credited there, there's there's research going on okay. and if you're if you're publishing your research then you'll you'll get more than credit you, you know mm. you publish your parish in academic medicine um there, there is good research that's that's going on but it's just it's it's still early days right. you know we don't have trials with with um you know, 500 patients across North America, or we don't have international trials with, you know, um, international multi-site um, 
work that's being done across Europe and Africa and and North America and South America. You know, like we. It's not like not cancer like and all these other things that have this, you know, very oh, God, wide yeah. swath. I mean, cancer is 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 sexy. Nothing makes people's hearts bleed more money than than seeing you know sort of pale bald kids who are <laughs> who are ailing um so there's there's huge financial interest in in um in cancer and so there's there's big research there but but there's there's huge interest these days in in um marijuana divide, uh, derived pharmaceuticals so it it's coming um but there are it, it's got a farther way to go than cancer or or even something just boring like hypertension or or diabetes or whatever that that's churning out <laughs> research by the minute and you, you can hardly even tell what's different between this ace inhibitor and that ace inhibitor but but there's money because there are just so many people who are suffering from these chronic non-communicable diseases you know yes absolutely i agree and so can any doctor prescribe um cannabis or do you have to go to like a special class or or you know additional cmes or what does it take to for a doctor to prescribe because like my doctor obviously is like no i'm not i'm not a doctor that prescribes cannabis so I, i was trying to understand is there something special you have to do to be a doctor in a market that's legal medically uh, to, to prescribe any medication, um, okay, it, it depends what class of medication you're, you're talking about. I don't know of regulations about marijuana-derived um, pharmaceuticals. I, mostly it's up to your comfort level, you know, and some people might opt just not to do it because they just don't know about enough about it or what they know so far it it leads them to think that they should not be prescribing for example you know in the the sickle cell community in hematology the adult physicians are are much more likely to to feel comfortable prescribing these drugs than the pediatric docs are um just because the the early reports about um cbd use and thc use in um in adolescents and kids has not been has not been good so um the the pediatricians are tending to say you know i'm not comfortable prescribing these these drugs right now yeah. whereas the the adult physicians might feel more comfortable yep that makes sense i have a quick question um going back uh, just to change gears slightly um when you were referencing your experience um treating um patients in jamaica more specifically the rastafarians and you mm -hmm. said you noticed that there was a specific difference in 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 the use of ganja um, in Jamaica amongst the Rastafarians and, and their health hazards slash results were different. Um, what I'm curious to, to, to know was, was there anything additional um, from your experiences that you, you, you kind of extrapolated from, from, from your conversations with them or just from treating them? Um, was there anything additional in their lifestyle that might have, might have added to this or, or you know, did, did the ganja kind of complement their lifestyle? Um, were there generally 
you know, were, were, were their overall health generally better? Did they have weight issues or were they generally in better health than everyone else? Can you comment on that a little bit, please? Great question. I mean, I can, I can comment on just my own experience. I have not published um, anything or, or done any kind of systematic trial uh, on this, this work. My observation was generally the Rastafarian community was sort of overall, quote unquote, healthier. They were less likely to be obese. They were less likely to be hypertensive. They were less likely to have um, type two diabetes. Uh, they uh, were perhaps more likely to have uh, spontaneous duodenal ulceration. Um, and this is this is something noticed mostly by the general surgeons, I think. Um, uh, yeah, spontaneous duodenal ulceration we tended to think happened more commonly in in chronic ganja users. Um, and, and what is that exactly? I'm not familiar yeah. with that term. Yeah, with with. Uh, 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 spontaneous duodenal, yeah. ulceration. This is, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of stomach ulcers or or small intestine ulcers. Yes, yes okay. Like their ulcers are, are raw areas of a, of a membrane lining. Like an ulcer on your skin could, could be just from like breakdown of the skin in a certain area. So you get sort of a, a raw area of skin that, that you know, it, it looks bloody and nasty, and and then it, it gets covered in sloth and and sort of pus and and scabby and stuff like that. Um, but ulceration can happen in the gut. Um, generally, people who um, are well, different different types of uh, morbidities will lead to stomach ulceration and sort of an hyperacidic um, environment in the stomach and like you know a kid who swallows a, a battery or something like that 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 could cause uh, an ulcer in the stomach and then it will uh, perforation means that it it, it busts through like it, it causes a hole mm -hmm. um and spontaneous means that it, it happens suddenly without without an obvious precipitant you know no warning um, right so yeah people who are alcoholic or like i said the kid who swallows a, a battery at the house or um or somebody who swallows um you know household cleaning products that those types of things can can cause ulceration and, and breakdown of the gut lining um but spontaneously we did tend to see that the, the rastafarian community just without without an obvious precipitant we would see them having these duodenal ulcers the duodenum is the part of the gut that follows just after the stomach it's part of the small intestine and that might be in part to diet and stuff like that, a combination of things, right? Oh, yeah, it, yeah, it could be. And like I said before I started this whole thing, my disclaimer was I have not studied any of this formally. Absolutely. Right <laughs> so right. this is, this is, this is your an personal experience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What you've seen. That's yeah. very that's fascinating. And the teams, the teams that I've worked with have, have made note of these things, but, but we have not published any of this. So this, um, as far as like sickle cell goes and, and mm -hmm. you know, your specific area of research, 
Um, is there anything that's you know that you're seeing promising about cannabis and what it might be able to do for that in research right now? Yeah, pain pain management is is yeah our our biggest interest um, because for such a long time there has been or there have been such limited choices um, as to how to manage pain in this this horribly debilitating disease um, and and also you know the the patients with these types of diseases are more likely to be labeled quote unquote drug seekers and drug abusers and and that type of thing so that we're always looking for for better ways different and better ways to manage pain if if at all possible um, so in the in the advent of this this awful opioid epidemic that is happening uh, right now, um, I I think that pain management options is is of the utmost um, interest in in sickle management and the use of of um, of marijuana derived pharmaceuticals. So not knowing a whole lot about sickle cell, can you just share with us a little bit about what um, that specific, um, you know, ailment is, you know, what, what, what is, where does it start? Is it something that's, that's hereditary? What, what is it, um, really? Yeah, now you guys really want to get me talking. Uh, <laughs> sickle cell disease is, is a genetic disease. Um, it's a disease of the red blood cells and it's, it's a really simple genetic disease like it, it's a point mutation there's just one amino acid that is is switched in somebody with sickle cell disease in the hemoglobin structure the hemoglobin is is a molecule that carries oxygen in red blood cells and this one point mutation um it, causes red blood cells to become misshapen and very, very rigid when they're deoxygenated. They tend to live a shorter period of time than normal adult red blood cells live. Um, and and this, this shortened lifespan, as well as these rigid cells, cause um, sort of a cascade of events in blood vessels. So the hallmark of the disease is is this pain crisis, which at first was thought to be the result of just blocking blood vessels to the bones and starving them of oxygen, causing excruciating deep bony pain. But uh, over the years, we've discovered it's not just blocking these blood vessels that causes this pain. It, it's also the huge inflammatory response that that happens as a result of of these red, sort of sickled shaped red blood cells that are rigid and, and blocking blood cells. It, it's causing white blood cells to sort of get angry and, and rush into this area. And then there's inflammation around the, the blood vessels and stuff. And there's the, the the pain crisis is the, like I said, the hallmark of the disease, but this disease, although it's so simple genetically, can cause a, a myriad of multi-systemic problems. It can cause uh, strokes in children, usually hemorrhagic, not hemorrhagic, uh, usually ischemic strokes in, in kids. 
can cause eye problems, eye bleeds in, in certain genotypes of sickle cell disease. Uh, it causes kidney problems. It can cause bone death, can cause liver problems, can cause skin ulceration. Actually, we were talking about ulcers earlier. Sickle cell patients can get bad ulcers on their ankles that are very, very hard to treat and, and resistant to um, regrowth of, of healthy skin. It, it's, to me, it's a fascinating disease and it and it's so simple genetically all you need is one abnormal s gene from one parent and another abnormal hemoglobin gene from another parent and if those two come together then you will have some type of sickle cell disease the commonest is ss meaning that you've gotten an s gene from from both of your parents and and they've both passed them on to you um but there are other types of sickle cell diseases and as so well if, is common. there a way to to like get tested ahead of time like you're gonna start a family you want to make sure that your cells are compatible it's not even that simple right <laughs> no, it is that it is that simple. I mean, some of it, some of it is is rolling the dice, but but yes, you can get tested, and I promote prenatal testing. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> like I said, you guys have got me really talking now. We're slightly off topic, but no, no, no um, this is this is great. I mean, yes. it's our audience. I'm sure should know more about this because it's something I think that you know we should be supporting and knowing more about. So, and I want to make sure that it's it's it, you're you're telling people about it because i don't know enough about it quite honestly right. i felt a little dumb <laughs> coming into this but this is great yeah man yeah you can you can do simple hematology tests to to tell if you either carry the trait or if you have any kind of abnormal hemoglobin or if you have the disease um if you have the disease and you're an adult you you probably have been tested already in your life and you probably already know what you've what you've got um, because of complications earlier in your life if, if you weren't diagnosed at birth but now in the united states there is universal newborn screening so all all babies that are born um are tested for sickle cell as well as other genetic diseases but sickle cell is the commonest of the genetic diseases that that um that pop up in and what does that do to mortalities i mean does it shorten your life yeah yeah okay. uh life expectancy in patients with sickle cell diseases in in the u.s is about 30 years younger than the general population uh in jamaica it is a little bit better like jamaican patients live about 10 years longer on average than than those living in the united states but in 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 the underdeveloped world um where where they they don't have treatment options for for kids with the disease then most most people will die in childhood so I got a quick question. So the the, the, the higher success rate or the higher um, mortality, well, not mortality, the higher rate in Jamaica. Survival. Survival rate. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Doc. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, what do you attribute that? What do you attribute that to? And there, there have been um, studies on longevity in jamaican sickle cell patients and it's attributed it's thought to other dietary um differences in many cases also the the blood 
ankh pool that is used in Jamaica is more genetically similar to the patient's genetics. So we tend to see fewer transfusion reactions in, in Jamaican patients than we do in, in uh, North American patients and European patients uh, with the disease. And, um, and well, like I said, nutritional differences seem to be seem to be the, the bigger driving difference that that has been um, that has been elucidated so far also also care for adult patients seems to be more consistent in in Jamaica like a lot of um, adult patients with sickle cell diseases in in the first world tend to get lost after they transition from pediatric to adult care there aren't as many hematologists with an interest in treating adult patients um, and and as such they they do suffer and they they do tend to experience sudden, sudden death at a higher rate than than Jamaican patients do so not to, so not to op- oversimplify it a bit but generally it's 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 kind of like the lifestyle um, that that they're living in Jamaica that is actually helping this or helping them live a little bit longer as opposed to other places in the world. Uh, that's I think an oversimplification, but but okay. yeah, lifestyle including nutritional options seem to contribute to to longevity in um, patients with sickle cell diseases in Jamaica as compared to patients with sickle cell diseases in the first world. Mm-hmm. So bringing it full circle, guys, I I think that it sounds like sickle cell overall, uh, you know, the pain side of it is where we think cannabis might really be able to help. It's not, you know, obviously a cure of any kind, but, you know, if it can bring some quality of life to people, then, you know, this is an important thing to study, right? Because I can't imagine living a life in pain that would just be horrible so um so hopefully this is what happens and you know we begin to see some results there more and more and more people in your field doctor you know recognize that and prescribe it and and hopefully we'll see or figure out how to dose for kids because i can't imagine a child you know going through something like that just listening to you and i have children of my own i I feel like you know i feel blessed first of all but you know recognizing that that could have been a a a thing you know quite honestly i didn't even think of it you know going into creating a family um it's it's just fascinating to me to hear that so hopefully cannabis does help and um and uh, you know we can be a part of that solution yeah i think cannabis already is helping quite a bit in in pain management um it's just that we don't have it documented in the right way yet so that we can so that we can share um how it's helping with others and and then try and recreate it in (laughs) in in prescribing options and practices for for people around the world but i think it already is helping and and as we get further and further along with with clinical trials uh, uh, using um, marijuana-derived uh, pharmaceuticals, we'll we'll be able to expand the, um, the the use tremendously. So, doctor, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. You've been amazing in terms of, you know, educating us. Um, your, you know, your 
clearly an expert in this area, and that just like us a bit understanding kind of the effects of cannabis and so on. And we really, really um, thank you for taking the time to to speak with us. We've been on for about 50 minutes now. Time flies when you're having good conversation. So, um, but um, we're going to wrap it up here. And uh, again, we want to just tell our, our listeners. Uh, if there's any questions you might have or anything that you heard today that you know you have questions about, please feel free to reach out to us at uh, wecare at jamrockorganics.com. Um, all that information is in the show details. You'll also see a bio um, of Dr. Cumming uh, in the bio, in the show, show notes, so you'll get a sense of um, um, who she is and the research she's done and, and all the wonderful things that um, you know she's been a part of. And you know, again, sincerely want to thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. What's up, everybody? You've just listened to The Real Green Show, brought to you by Jamrock Organics. I'm your host, Garth Case. If you enjoyed the show today, please consider leaving us a review. And check us out at jamrockorganics.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on our show, email us at wecare at jamrockorganics.com. Last but not least, please don't take any of the information you get on the show from the hosts or guests as medical, legal, or financial advice. Speak with the appropriate licensed professional. At times, we will share promotional information and provide commercial reviews of products. We will always disclose when we are paid or if any of our discussions are investment related. Peace and love, my friends. Them are the best, them producing some of the purest cannabis. Are the best legal and medicine marijuana. Grow natural from the earth by the farmer. Jamrock organics, them are the best, them producing some of the purest cannabis.